Welcome to the East End Fellowship Podcast. East End Fellowship is a community of Christians located in Richmond, Virginia, with the goal of seeing every person become a disciple of Jesus and live in the joy and justice of God's kingdom. Our spiritual family meets weekly in house churches and on Sundays at our large gathering. The following is a teaching from our time together. We hope you feel encouraged, challenged, and delighted by what you hear. All right, so I'm excited as I always am because we're in the middle of a sermon series. I think this is week seven, I think, of the series. So we've been trudging along, right? We, um, uh, as you might remember, we're kind of have two different sides to the series. The first half is really focusing on the Old Testament and how God reveals himself to the people of Israel. And the second half focuses on Jesus' I am statements in the Gospel of John. And so, um, so we're not even halfway done. But it's all right. It's a good thing because there's a lot to unpack when it comes to God. And if this series isn't even enough, there's a workshop. Let me just give another plug for the workshop coming up on the 10th. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun. It's been fun. So last week we were reminded that we serve a God who sees us. Um, Sharika preached uh, a really helpful sermon focusing on the story of uh, Hagar and um, the ways that God met Hagar in the midst of a really, really hard time. And we were reminded that God is one who does not, he sees those, especially those who might be overlooked by those in society, right? People who folks might forget about. God never forgets about them. And so today we're going to look at another story of scripture that captures some of this as well. And we're going to be focusing on 2 Samuel chapter 9. And to provide a little bit of context, King David at at this time is king in Israel, and Saul, who had been his predecessor, has already passed away. And so David wasn't close to Saul, but he had been close to his son, Jonathan, right? They're best friends. But Jonathan had also died. And that's kind of where this story picks up. So I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word if you're able. Hear the word of the Lord. David asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king said, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and to bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, 
And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. You may be seated. May the Lord have a blessing to the reading of his word. Um, about a week or so ago, someone came to me and asked me uh, what my favorite passage in all the scripture was. And this was a story that came to mind for me. And honestly, I don't know if there are that many passages in the scripture that um, so clearly paint this picture of the type of God we serve and what God does for us. Um, it's striking to me that when David kind of inquires about if there's someone that's a descendant of Jonathan he could reach out to, he says he's looking for someone to show God's kindness towards. And so I just love this story. And to provide a little bit of context, as I mentioned, David's king of Israel. He has all this power, all these possessions. And he goes out of his way to invite someone who he's never met into his home to live with him for the rest of his life, into his family. He provides food for him. He takes care of him. And in spite of the stigma associated with him because of his disability, he invites him into family. Imagine what that must have been like for Mephibosheth. His grandfather had been king. Now he finds himself not only disabled but dependent with no father and no grandfather. And instead of being heir to the throne, he's mostly forgotten by society. Even Ziba reminds David of the stigma associated with Mephibosheth. David asks a very simple question. All he says is, is there anyone in Saul's family that I can bless because of how much Jonathan meant to me? And instead of just saying who the person is, Ziba feels compelled to add, oh, yeah, but he's, you know, he's crippled. He's got these issues going on. In other words, you might want to rethink that, right? You don't really want to help this guy out. There's someone who fits the description, but you're a king. Right? Why would you bother yourself with this man? He doesn't really belong here. But David doesn't bat an eye. He invites Mephibosheth into the king's court. He hosts him. He invites him into family. Not because of anything that Mephibosheth did, but simply because of who he was connected to. Um, years ago, I struck up a friendship with a guy um, in grad school. And I met him. He was super smart. He seemed pretty well connected and I remember we were like at a library studying one time together, and um, I, uh, I asked him which program he was in, because he, he was like in like one or two of my classes, but then he was in other classes. And I was like, what, what program are you in? And he said, um, oh, it's, it's a little bit complicated. Um, it's a joint program between like these two schools at the university and these two departments and this and this. And, you know, I don't know how, how familiar you are with like the way grad school structure typically, but like joint programs are not uncommon, right? They're joint programs between like a law degree and a religion degree, or MD and uh, getting an MBA, right? There are all these joint programs that happen. But as he was describing it, I realized that the track he was describing, like that track literally didn't exist. It didn't make sense, right? I had a cohort of people who applied for my program, but he had no cohort. And so I was really confused, and eventually I began to put the pieces together. So it turns out that his dad was closely related to a former U.S. president, and our school had created a very specific graduate track just for him, just for this guy, right? I, you know, to get in the school, there were, for my, my, my program, there were 118 applicants, five slots. I was number six, and I got off a waiting list, right? So I made it in. So like, but he didn't have to worry about that because they wanted him and they made space at the table. That's what they did. Now, he was certainly a bright guy, a good friend of mine, um, but everybody in grad school is bright, right? Everybody's bright. But because of who he was connected to, they created this space for him. And I thought it was fascinating. 
thought it was fascinating. Because of his lineage, because of who he's connected to, he was given this unique opportunity, and he was invited in. And I think that Mephibosheth has a very similar experience. But the difference is that, whereas my friend was very used to these things happening, Mephibosheth cannot wrap his mind around it at all. He's completely caught off guard. This whole idea of being adopted into a family kind of, kind of just scares him. And so the first thing David has to say to him is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Mephibosheth reveals his uneasiness and his doubt when he asks why David would notice a dead dog like him. Mephibosheth's response is similar to many of our own responses when God invites us into deeper relationships with him and with other believers. We might recognize our hunger for more um, meaningful relationships, but we might think we're not good enough. We might fear that people will see our flaws, or we might assume that other people all have it together. Bad assumption. But God doesn't respond to our need for spiritual family by adopting us because we're perfect. He adopts us because he loves us more than we can imagine. And he adopts us because we are connected to his son. Even with our limitations, our weaknesses, and our struggles. And the truth is that the family he invites us into, surprise, is full of very broken people. Very broken people. It's fascinating to me that David is inviting Mephibosheth into his family in chapter 9. And by chapter 11, David's committing adultery, having someone murdered in battle, right? Doing all these things. In other words, welcome to the family, right? This is hardly the perfect family. And this is true about God's family, too. It's messy. People make mistakes. People offend one another again and again. People are different. But God reaches out to each of us and invites us in. He draws us into an imperfect family because, as Elena reminded us a few weeks ago, it's a family that he is mending. He's mending. And that's what makes it worthwhile. God is with us, healing us and showing us how to share his love with each other. But it's easy to talk about sharing God's love with each other. It's hard to actually share our lives with each other. Sharing love can easily be transactional. Right? We can check off the good deed for the day. We can bless somebody. Sharing love doesn't necessarily have to require any sacrifice on our part. It can be short-term, and then we move on. Sharing life is different. It's different. That's what's so amazing about what God does with us. This invitational God invites us into his family, and God walks with us throughout all of our lives. A relationship that will cost us something, but provide us with everything. More than we can imagine. For some of us, kind of engaging in this and responding to this invitation can feel hard because it requires a commitment of time, right? We live in a culture that trains us to be busy, to fill our lives with all these other things. And because of this, we crowd our lives and God can get left out. Now, some of the things we do in our lives are pretty inescapable. Some family commitments, some work commitments. Please go to work, you know, spend time with your family. It's a good thing. But there are things that we do in our lives that are not, they're not worth that much time. And the truth, though, is that we make time for what's important to us. For those of us who have a hard time making time for spiritual family outside of Sunday worship or outside of house church, perhaps God is calling us to reconsider our weekly priorities and commitments. What might it mean for us to view gatherings such as large gathering or house church or even missional opportunities in our neighborhoods as primarily ways to encounter Jesus? What if these are opportunities to be with God? That, to me, is a much more compelling invitation than just gathering in a room with a bunch of people, right? I'm an introvert. There are a lot of introverts in here. Can you raise your hand if you're an introvert? Let's do it. Solidarity. Um, right? 
we, sometimes we're cool with just being at home, right? But we come here, right? We're all, you know, cool people, but we're coming because we believe Jesus is here. That's why we're here, right? It's not just a gathering. He is the host. This is his space. We are his family. This is his family. That's why we're here. And I think that reorientation can help us to approach spiritual family differently. For others of us, investing more in spiritual family seems difficult because we fear the vulnerability that comes with being deeply known by someone. That can be scary. This could be because our trust was violated before, even by Christians. Maybe we took the risk of opening up to someone else, but we were hurt by them. We might also be hesitant to open up ourselves to others because the family we grew up in was often emotionally unavailable. In other words, our family taught us that emotions and struggles were not things to share but suppress. A family where even allowing yourself to feel can be synonymous with failing. These patterns are far too common in our world and even practiced in our churches. And they blind us from the truth that feeling is not a path to failure but to freedom. That's what God wants for us. God calls us to take the risk of being vulnerable and sharing our lives with each other so that we can be free and help others to be free and whole. That's why this invitational God invites us in. And this doesn't mean that the first day of house church or when you get up here for community prayer that you need to bury your soul every time. You don't have to do that. You can if God leads you, right? But it does mean that in really sharing our lives, we can experience a depth a spiritual family and community that would otherwise be impossible. It does take time to cultivate trust with others, but we have to be open to this if we are to experience everything that God really has for us. If we're honest with ourselves, I think that each of us longs for this deep, deep down, and there's so much to gain if we take that risk. That's what David struggles to get Mephibosheth to see. There's so much to gain. He tells him that in this family, everything that belonged to his grandfather Saul will now be given to him. And he's invited to eat with him at his table and to live as all of his other sons, to be grafted in, to be protected, to be cared for. And this is what God does for us. When God invites us into his family, he offers us more than we could imagine. He offers to be our father and to graft us into a spiritual family, a chance to be truly known and loved by others in spite of our weaknesses and to be free from our fear of dependence. That's what Mephibosheth experiences. And this is countercultural when you think about it. In our society, we pay lip service to the idol of self-sufficiency, but still cling, or the, yeah. We pay lip service to the ideal of family, actually, and, and um, instead, we cling to the idol of self-sufficiency. In other words, we talk about, you know, people helping each other out, but our American mantra is still, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? That's what we believe in. You should be able to take care of yourself if you just work hard enough. Or you're struggling with paying your bills? What's, what's wrong with you? We don't first ask what's wrong with our society that we worship an economic system that consistently exploits low-wage workers. And this applies to socioeconomics as well as things like physical limitations. Mephibosheth was dealing with both of those things. Author Amy Kinney, who, um, who authored My Body is Not a Prayer Request, she put it this way. She says, it is not my inability to walk or stand that disables me. Rather, I'm disabled by the fact that buildings are structured with stairs, narrow hallways, and curbs, making them difficult for me to access on wheels. While she acknowledges that her condition includes physical limitations, her environment is the reason why that limitation results in disability. Maybe she's not disabled. Maybe our environment is disabled. 
Maybe the primary reasons why people lack access and opportunity and enjoyment to the degree that others do is because the environment, situations, and social structures that our society has placed them in. When we see people, maybe our first question shouldn't be what is wrong with them or even how do we fix them, but what is wrong with our world that creates barriers for people to be included, to be invited? Instead of addressing social structures of injustice, too often we prefer to elevate self-sufficiency. Thank God that the gospel is much better news than this. Much better news. The gospel tells us the story of a God who meets us in the midst of our limitations, invites us into spiritual family, and is establishing a kingdom to redeem the structures that harm and hinder us. God invites us into family. One of the, um, the metaphors the scripture uses to, to capture this invitation is the metaphor, um, an image of adoption. God desires to take us in, right, to, to wrap his arms around us and to dispel any notion that we are unwanted, forgotten, or alone. This is a story of Mephibosheth. This is a story of the church. Christianity isn't about being invited into a building. It's about being adopted into a body, a whole body. It's an amazing thing to realize that in spite of your doubts, weaknesses, or even your securities, you're invited into family. A while back, a friend of mine shared a story about this. He um, actually was given up for adoption shortly after he was born, and he was fortunate enough to be adopted by a really supportive family. But then when he was around four years old or so, his, um, his adopted father died. And as years passed, he continued to process not only the loss of his adopted father, but then all the unknowns about why he was adopted in the first place, like what happened. And then he found himself in his early 30s pinning these words. Back in June, I jumped on the Ancestry DNA bandwagon after seeing a commercial offering uh, a Father's Day special. Admittedly, it was late, and I'd had a couple of glasses of wine, but I thought, that's cheaper than usual, isn't it? Just be like everyone else and give it a go. Fast forward a month or so later, when the results finally came in, uh, they revealed more than the fact that my people came from parts of Africa and Europe. I'd already known that. Silly adopted me for not knowing this, but come to find out, if others who share your DNA take the test, Ancestry provides a list of their profiles and their relationship to you. As an adopted person with only non-identifying information about my birth parents, like how old they were when I was born, imagine my surprise when I saw a list of specific names, one being identified as likely my maternal aunt. Talk about Florida. Throughout my adult life, I'd looked here and there and quite sporadically for my birth family, nothing too serious. The plan was to do a deep search one day, but that certainly wasn't my intent when I spit my saliva into a tube and mailed it off to Ancestry's lab. I've yet to find the words to accurately, dis- accurately describe the 24 hours that followed the moment I saw that list of names. An out-of-body experience, perhaps? Maybe a scene from the movie Lion? I haven't seen Lion, I don't know what that, that means. But with a few key names from Ancestry, some info I'd accidentally learned in my late 20s, going all Aaron Brockovich with public records, and I must say, some quite good detective work on my part, I pieced together who my birth mother was, all while sitting in a tiny apartment in the wee hours of the night. The next morning, I messaged that maternal aunt, and within several hours, I received confirmation from her that I was right. Her youngest sister was my birth mother. After a few additional exchanges, she let me know that my birth mother was shocked, ecstatic, and couldn't wait to talk to me. So I passed along my number. She sent me a text, and we had our first of several hours-long conversations before we finally met in person just weeks later. Since that first meetup that lasted more than eight hours, we've hung out loads of times, asking questions, telling stories, catching up. Every hangout has been fantastic. 
To say this has been surreal is an understatement. You know, when you're adopted, you worry about that the fairy tale you've been told and wanted to believe, i.e. that your parents were great, that they did it out of love, etc., won't be true. You wonder if they survived a difficult decision one wrought with complexities. Did they find happiness? Will they be people you actually like or would want to know? My birth mother has, without a doubt, exceeded my wildest expectations. She's incredibly kind, funny, thoughtful, and as compassionate as I could have ever hoped. And she's let me take this at my own pace. Getting to know and become friends with her, to notice our similar mannerisms, to hear what her life's been like, or that she's thought of me all the time and even took time to look for me, has been the highlight of a lifetime. I know that not every adoption story ends like mine, that I have a super involved mom and a birth mom who love me deeply from their respective beginnings with me is nothing short of a blessing. And that this reunion and the uniting of two parts of my life has been so easy and joyous shows me that, dare I say, miracles do happen and that beauty can be given for ashes. Now, what struck me about this story was that this was a situation in which my friend had all the reasons in the world to feel abandoned and alone, either because of being given up for adoption or after the passing of his adoptive father. But instead, after all these years, he found that he was deeply loved by his birth mom, she had not forgotten about him, and that she'd even tried to find him. And even in her absence, in the absence of his father, God had always provided for him. I think that this is one of the reasons why the Bible uses adoption as an image for our inclusion into God's family. In our lives, we can endure loss or abandonment, and these circumstances can cause us to question whether we are loved, whether we are lovable, and whether we belong. But in the kingdom of God, we are all invited to receive our identities as those beloved by our Father, those who have not been forgotten, those who are invited into God's family to sit at his table. For most of us, even if we have not experienced longing for adoption specifically, we do know what it feels like to experience loss or abandonment. The good news is that God will never leave us alone. Amen. He will never forsake us. And just like my friend's mom, just like the story of the prodigal son, he will come looking for us. Yes. Mephibosheth lost his father, but God was still looking for him. Maybe some of us are here when we, and we feel a bit like Mephibosheth. We hear the invitation into spiritual family, but there are reasons that we, we hesitate. You may find it hard to receive support from others because we convinced ourselves that we will burden them or we fear that eventually they will disappoint or desert us. Or maybe we find it hard to be vulnerable with others because we think that we're going to get judged. My prayer is that God would give us the courage to say yes to God's invitation into the fullness of family. For some of us, maybe we aren't like Mephibosheth. Maybe it's not our story. Maybe we are more like David. In other words, maybe we've been in this church or this community for years and feel very much connected. Maybe the challenge for us is to practice radical hospitality towards those who are often unseen. This could shape how we welcome newcomers into our church or our house church. It could look like going out of our way to walk alongside and advocate for the marginalized in our neighborhood. It could look like forsaking the conveniences of comfort so that those who have been forgotten by our city can flourish. It could look like leading lives marked more by sacrifice than safety. That's actually what Jesus did. It wasn't very safe for Jesus to enter the world. But his sacrifice set the table for an invitation. We serve an invitational God. And being an invitational people is about actively engaging those around us with the love and hospitality that God has shown us. God calls us to share this love and our lives with others. God looks at us and all of our inner brokenness 
our physical limitations, our histories, our weaknesses, our struggles, and he's not scared or surprised by any of them. He responds by inviting us into family. May God give us the courage to follow in the footsteps of this invitational God. So I invite you to stand and pray with me. And I invite the band back up. Dear God, thank you for your invitation. Thank you that you are God all by yourself. But God, you desire to create out of grace and to invite your creation into relationship with you. God, thank you that you do this with us even when we rebel against you, even when we have struggles, even when we have weaknesses, even when we resist you. You are a God who pursues us. So God, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would allow us and enable us to open up ourselves fully to you. I pray that you would give us the courage to open up ourselves to those in your body. So God, we might actually be knit together and be interdependent the way you describe in your scripture. God, show us that there's so much that is possible when we embrace the fullness of the, of the family, of your family. And I pray that the vision that you give us for that would outweigh any fears we would have that would hold us back from encountering you. So God, we do pray that you would break down any barriers to that and pray also you would open up our eyes to the opportunities for us to be ambassadors of your family to our neighbors to those around us, to those who are longing for belonging. God, I pray you would help us to people who remind the world that you have not forgotten about them either. So we thank you for what you desire to do. And we pray that you would do it through the power of your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. We appreciate you tuning in to the East End Fellowship Podcast. To see the full video of the sermon you just listened to, and for the best way to get in touch with us, check the show notes for all of our social media channels. For more information about how you can get involved with our community and to sign up for our newsletter, please visit eastendfellowship.org. Thanks again for listening.